Welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining. I'm Frank here with Byron. Uh, Byron, before we get started with uh, the show and everything, let people know what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. We here on Politically Entertaining, we pretty much cover things that are important to you. We also try to cover things that aren't covered as much in the mainstream media, bring attention to it, let you know why it's important. And if we come across some things that have been covered heavily in the mainstream media, we may touch on it if we feel like it's that important. Um, before we get into you know the news and politics of this show, Frank, as you know, since our last episode, LeBron won his uh, third championship, first with Cleveland. And uh, I'm kind of happy for him. I, you know, I'm a Heat fan, so I definitely at first didn't want him to win with Cleveland, but it was good to see him win. And it's it's no longer a la- laughable matter when uh, you compare him to Kobe or MJ. And I say that because some of his fans, when his first stint in Cleveland, some of them were already trying to compare him to Jordan and Kobe before he had won anything. Now he has three rings, four MVPs, uh, three final MVPs. He he may not be better than Kobe or MJ, but he he's at least knocking on the door. So my question to you is, after winning his championship, is LeBron in your top three, top five, or is he lower? Where do you have him right now? That's a, that's a great question, and, and it is interesting because I do follow you on Facebook at times, and, and I've seen your love-hate with LeBron. Most certainly, he is a top 10 player of all time. I don't really think that's a debate. I know some people are still debating whether or not he's better than Larry Bird or something. I, I think I think without question, he's the best small forward of all time. Now, where that places him in the pantheon of top NBA players is going to be difficult. Uh, I don't, I don't know that even if he won three more championships, people would put him ahead of Jordan just because, you know, he has, you know, he's had some failures in the postseason, but, uh, especially in the finals. But with that being said, he's, he's an all time great player. Uh, you can certainly start comparing him, uh, and the things he's done. I mean, one of the things he did with this championship in particular was beating a team like Golden State coming back from 3-1. That's, that might have been the greatest accomplishment in finals history, even, even though obviously it's not, doesn't make him equal with, uh, you know, Kobe or, or Jordan as far as number of rings, but that is a feat that that one ring is kind of like, oh, that's a pretty special championship. And to bring it to a city that hadn't won, uh, that certainly gives him a, a, a big chip, you know, big chip in his, uh, you know, back pocket. And, and just the way they did it, you know, him scoring 40 points back to back games, triple double to close it out, the, the crazy block. It was his, it was a legacy defining series for him, so he's certainly there. He's only he's 31. He does have a lot of miles on his, his uh, legs, but let's let's give him a few more years before we say where if he, you know put him in the top five, top three. He's in the top ten in my opinion. Certainly, uh, let's see how you know they do for the rest of his career. I mean, if he doesn't win another championship, he could potentially be a top five player. But right now, he's in the top ten, and let's just see what happens for the rest of his career. Yeah, he's definitely in top 10. Anybody that argues he's not in top 10, I mean, you just got to end the conversation right there. Uh, but congratulations to him. Congratulations to Cleveland and the Cavs. Except for Dan Gilbert. I'm not forgiving that guy. But everybody else, congrats. With that said, man, let's go and get into some politics.
You are listening to Politically Entertaining, your Cliff's Notes to American Politics. And now your host, Frank I want to thank everybody for joining us for another episode of Politically Entertaining. We're going to discuss racism in Airbnb. Going to discuss uh, some of the latest Supreme Court rulings that me and Frank have talked about in previous episodes at Brexit. And Brandon R. Davis will be joining us later. But first, Frank, uh, you know, as we were getting ready for the show, uh, we had an attack in Istanbul earlier this week. Forty nine dead. Uh, It was three bombers. And, you know, when I usually send you the show, I just send you like quick notes. And the, the note for this said another attack. And as we were preparing for this show, sure enough, a a literal another attack happened. It's like what I want to talk to you is like how normal is this becoming? It's shameful to say, but, you know, with what happened in Orlando and then Istanbul, 49 people dead, another 20 today in Bangladesh. ISIS claiming uh, responsibility for this. My question to you is with a lot of this being ISIS influence or ISIS carry out. Obama in the beginning, he referred to ISIS, you know, you hear a lot of Republicans say he refers to him as the JV, uh, the the junior varsity team. And I know that's a talking point for them, but I do think they're on to something in that. Do you think this administration by uh, underestimating this group, is this one of Obama's biggest uh, failures when it comes to national security? I think I think it's a very interesting point. It's a fair point. Uh, you know, certainly uh, the president has has made some mistakes. Certainly you can argue that his, uh, you know, maybe the rhetoric is one thing to say whether or not they're the JV squad or their, you know, second team, B team. They, they were going to do what they were going to do regardless. I don't think they're going out saying, oh, we're the JV team. We're going to, you know, prove somebody wrong. This is like a sports. This isn't bullet, bulletin board material like sports. But what I do think there was a mistake made was, I think obviously the initial mistake was potentially made going into Iraq, destabilizing the region, which created, uh, you know, the, the opportunity for uh, these splinter groups to exist, uh, like, like an ISIL or an ISIS. Uh, the, but ha- however, after um, President Obama took the office, Maybe there was not enough done as far as understanding what had happened on the ground in in the previous, you know, half decade that we were in Iraq. We invaded in 2003, and then when the president took the office in 2008, and we moved out troops. I don't remember the exact day. I want to say it was 2011, 2012. Maybe there was not a, a good assessment of what had been done because I'm a firm believer in. He inherited a lot of problems, but at the same time, you you still sign up to be the president, so you can't ignore the problems that that are there. So, I think they made a mistake in potentially gauging how dangerous ISIS was initially. Not not even what not even the rhetoric later, but just initially letting them get started because that's the biggest thing. Once once they proliferated and and became splinter groups and they were able to do these things, it's going to be tough to track them. Now, I think initially they were just in. Iraq or around the borders of, 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 you know, Iraq, Iran, maybe, or something like that. But now they're kind of all over the place and they've had a chance to get money and they've, you know, grown their, uh, their message. They, they've got people from all types of different ethnicities and, and, um, religions actually supporting them or being, you know, claiming doing attacks in their name. So they're a serious problem that have to be addressed. And obviously, as you mentioned, 
the attack in, in Istanbul is you know horrible at an airport. I mean, you imagine being an American, you fly all the time and you just can't imagine. I saw the video of people running through the airport and things exploding and people falling down because of the shockwaves, the blast. I mean, it was, it was a horrifying thing to watch. And then, uh, you know, people getting killed in the cafe. And as I mentioned before, we started recording, just imagining going in to get lunch with your family and then getting gunned down in a cafe. It's just, you know, um, sometimes we as we as Americans, we kind of have disbelief suspended because we're like, oh, that happened over there, happened in the Middle East. But this type of thing is is coming this way. And, and I just want to let people, you know, get prepared. This this world is is very dangerous. So it's it's a problem for all of us. Don't take a single day for granted is what I always try to say. You mentioned that withdrawal date. That withdrawal date was actually set by the Bush administration and it was just carried out by Obama. Now, the I told you so tour by the Republicans, they're saying that, especially Senators uh, Lindsey Graham and Senator John McCain, they're saying that, yes, Bush did set that date. But you had commanding officers in the field telling you not to do this and that an ISIS or a group like ISIS would happen if you left Iraq. So uh, Obama does have to get some of this blame. And I think it's fair to criticize him on this. But it's, it's enough blame to go several presidents back. That's for a whole nother show, but we definitely have made some foreign policy decisions from over 20 years ago that affect us here today. Want to uh, get away from, I guess you could say, world politics and terrorism and talk about a local issue that uh, members of the CBC brought up. Have Air, Airbnb, uh, for those that don't know, they're like a, uh, a, a website that allows you to rent other people's home when you go out of town. It's supposed to be a cheaper alternative, a better alternative to uh, staying in a hotel. You can stay in someone's condo or home. And there have been recent allegations of racism and Representatives Butterfield and Cleaver of the Congressional Black Caucus, they called on the CEO of Airbnb and uh, they, they questioned him on this, you know, addressing the allegations of racism. What has happened is According to this Harvard uh, study, they take people that have the same profiles. They take people they take people that have the same profile, but one will have what you call quote a black name and one will have a white name. And almost every time, the one with the black name gets excluded when it comes to people wanting to rent these homes for the week while they're on vacation. Now, some of the things that the congressional caucus have suggested are like having a 48-hour wait after you reject someone. That way it'll cut down on people just automatically uh, rejecting someone just based on uh, race. Brian Chesky is the CEO of Airbnb. He said he takes these allegations very seriously. Uh, my question to you is, and I almost know the answer for sure, are you surprised by <laughs> the race, the racism allegations? And have you have you used Airbnb? Are you familiar with their uh, services at all? So that's, that's a great question. Airbnb, I, you know, it makes me feel like I'm getting old. You know, I'm 34 and Airbnb, I, I, you know, I heard about it earlier this year. I don't know how long it's actually been out or, 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 or how you have it, but I do, I am familiar with the concept. It, it did, it made me feel weird. Like, man, would I even want to stay in somebody's house? I'm pretty particular uh, about where I stay. Certainly, you know, traveling uh, with my family, my wife, and, you know, when you stay in somebody's house, you don't really know. Uh, that's a different conversation for a different time. But of course, I'm not surprised. I mean, when you're talking, just going back to the point, you're staying in somebody's house, staying in somebody's condo. 
just just to just to jump off uh, base a little bit. Remember Donald Sterling? People forget about him and they they think, okay, yeah, he made the comments about Max Johnson. He made the comments. He's you know, uh, you know, and that's what ended up getting him kicked out. He made comments about black black bringing black guys pe- people to the game. His his little he, side piece. But yeah. the real disgusting thing that Donald Sterling did was he refused to rent to blacks and Hispanics because he said they attracted vermin and they smelled bad. And and that's what should have been. And that's another comes to another time. But that should have would have should have been what disqualified him from being an owner of an NBA team, not his side piece who leaked to the media, you know, uh, a conversation because she wasn't getting what she wanted. With that being said, there's a lot of Donald Sterling's out there. They may not own NBA teams, but they may say, hmm, I don't want, you know, certain types of people staying in my house because they have preconceived notions. Again, going back to last week, not that it's related, but, you know, you don't know any black people and all you know is the caricatures of what you see on TV. So you don't necessarily want them in your house. You're kind of like, uh, I don't know if I want black people in my house because I don't really know any black people. And I heard that they might do this or they might do that. They might be ghetto. You know, they might do something, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's all a perception thing. So. It doesn't surprise me one bit when people who are renting out their homes or their property who are not at a level, say, like a Marriott, like a Marriott is obviously a huge corporation. They can't say, well, we don't want black people staying in our hotels because that would destroy them. Uh, you know, somebody who's renting a room on Airbnb, them discriminating is not really going to destroy what they're doing because they probably have enough volume to have people coming in and out of their, their, their condo. They can, you know, basically, uh, you know, serve where they want to serve. I think the difficult question here is, what is Airbnb? Is 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 it a Plessy versus Ferguson or is it a Brown versus versus Board of Education? Meaning, like, can somebody just say, "Hey, I only want to rent to white people. It's my house. Why do I have to rent to black people? This is my establishment. I'm not necessarily. I'm not a corporation that has, you know, the law disclaimer that we are an equal employer opportunity. We do not discriminate against race, creed, color, religion, orientation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is my house. This is my room. I can rent who I want to. Right? I mean, that that's kind of what people do. I mean, that's kind of what happened in America. That's why we have the segregation we have in the neighborhoods we have. So why are we surprised that Airbnb is doing this? Nobody is surprised. The question is, do they have legal ramifications to to force people to have certain people stay there? Personally, I don't want to stay somewhere where somebody's already just, you know, knocking my name off because it has a certain uh, blackness to it. Not that, ironically, I have one of the whiter I'm air quotes. I'm doing air quotes. I don't really believe in that type of thing. But Frank Turner is a pretty generic name. So I don't think I'd be getting marked off any Airbnb list off the jump. You know, they'd be like, oh, Frank, Correct. Frank Turner. Oh, we'll <laughs> let you stay here, sir. And then I'll show up now, you know, get out, nigger. But I mean, you just you just laugh at this kind of thing because it just shows that when people say we're in post-racial uh, America, this is exactly why we're not, because as we allow more things to be put on social media and more people to become part of the fabric of, you know, renting homes and doing things like that, small, you know, little things like that, you'll see these things happen. And a lot of people have these prejudices and it's kind of sad that they do. Uh, you know, the CEO, as you mentioned, I haven't read his response or anything, but he sounds like he's a responsible guy. I just don't know he, if he can do anything to police this because it's going to be kind of difficult. Uh, it almost be the same thing as uh, I mean, what if what if Uber, you know, what, what if Uber people did? This? I, I know that you, you sometimes you have a picture. What if, you know, certain Uber drivers were only picking up people of certain races? I mean, I don't know if that's come up, but it's a similar type of question. How do you police this type of thing? It's just difficult. And it's important to know we've we've mentioned the name Airbnb 
uh, frequently in this section. But it's not the actual company Airbnb that's being racist. It's the people that use the service that are looking and saying, oh, no, I don't want Jamal staying in my place. Uh, ain't no way in hell I'm letting Deontay come stay in my place. And they're rejecting him. So it's the people. It's not actually Airbnb. And for your for the hypothetical question you asked, like, you know, should people be allowed to determine who they want to stay in their home? Yeah, they can do that. Yeah, if you don't want Deontay or Jamal to stay in your home, that's fine. But you just can't use Airbnb because that actually violates the Civil Rights Act using uh, a company or, or whatever to discriminate against somebody. Now, if you want to privately on your own rent your home out, I know people do that when the Super Bowl comes to their town, they put it on Craigslist or whatever. If you want to do it privately, that's fine. But you can't do it do it through Airbnb. And again, the CEO, Brian Chesky, he has said that they're taking it seriously. He even mentioned how they permanently removed a host in North Carolina that was uh, doing this consistently as far as rejecting uh, minorities. So we'll see how that plays out. I haven't used the website. I have friends that uh, swear by it and say it's good. So I don't know. I may check it out. I'm like you, Frank, though. I'm, I'm real particular. Again, we have Brandon Davis coming up later in the show. Uh we're going to talk the Brexit uh, fallout and we're going to saw uh, that Jesse Williams speech that we all were talking about on the BET Awards last week. We're definitely going to break down that speech uh, right now. A few episodes ago, me and Frank, we talked about a couple of um, around about the times uh, Justice Scalia passed away. We talked about certain Supreme Court cases that were coming up and how would this death affect these cases where well, we got two big returns in uh, the, the past week. The first, we talked about abortion. What Texas was doing was coming up with these very, very strict uh, codes and laws for abortion clinics to follow, therefore, thereby making a lot of them uh, have to close down and women that were seeking abortions would have to go hundreds of miles away. Some would have to go out of state because there wouldn't be a clinic for hundreds of miles. The Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. It came back 5-3. No, Donald Trump said if Scalia was alive, this wouldn't have happened. Or if he had been allowed to appoint a conservative judge, this wouldn't have happened. Obviously, his math is off because even with another conservative justice, it would have been 5-4. So, again, that's some of you guys' favorite candidate, but he kind of messed up on the math. In the other case, uh, Virginia's uh, former governor, Bob McDonald, he was found guilty of pretty much doing favors for this guy who was selling supplements. We talked about it on the previous show and he was using the state office uh, to pretty much force universities, allegedly force universities to do studies on this. And he was holding dinners and, and raising funds for this guy to push this supplement. The Supreme Court said that he did not use an official act as far as being a governor. Therefore, he is not guilty. So they reversed the decision. McDonald is now a free man. And that surprisingly, Frank, was a unanimous decision, 8-0. And the only reason I can come up with it coming back unanimous is because, you know, Supreme Court justices, they like free stuff, too. And I guess they saw it a completely different way than the previous court did. Uh, Like I said, we talked about both of these cases. So just wanted to get your thoughts on the Texas case, the McDonald case or, or both. So it's, that's, a, that's a very interesting point you made about Trump's math being off. I think a lot of times we, 
if, if, if this makes any sense, you know, for people that think about the system of checks and balances we have with the United States government, we have obviously the, the executive branch with the president's holds. We have the legislative branch where you have the Senate uh, and, and uh, House representatives there. And then you have the judicial branch, which houses the Supreme Court. So the interesting thing is that presidents often tout their ability to influence the Supreme Court. Now, while that may be true in some cases, the Supreme Court is, as I've always mentioned, they do not just they don't want to create upheaval. Doesn't matter if they're a strong conservative, strong liberal. They are there to interpret the laws in a certain way. And for the most part, they don't like to reverse precedents that have happened. Like, for instance, Brown versus Board of Education has been has stood for I want to say it was in 54 and I could be completely wrong, but it stood for quite some time. Roe v. Wade. I don't have the date on that, but those things, they don't reverse their rulings that often. So the idea that a conservative additional conservative justice will, redu- will, will reverse Obamacare, will reverse uh, same sex marriage, will reverse abortion is a fallacy because you just had uh, if Scalia is a conservative. Those things were already passed in there when, during his watch. So why it's like it's, it's a, so you're saying another conservative judge is going to come in and sway the other conservative judges to hey let's repeal all these laws? That's not how it works. They, I think that the the Supreme Court takes their job very seriously and they're not puppets to be manipulated by um, Congress or or the president. That's exactly why they have a lifetime appointment. Some people say why they have a lifetime appointment so that they cannot be swayed by any particular thing. Because if you're up for re-election, maybe you interpret some laws differently. But once you're appointed to the Supreme Court. Doesn't matter if you're a conservative and you and you don't believe in abortion. If you don't, you're not going to necessarily overturn the law because you're not going to. It's not going to win you any points one way or another, you know. So the people who are in the legislative and executive branch are the ones who will say, "Oh, well, I made this happen." Well, no, the Supreme Court interpreted the law a certain way and they made it happen. And I think they have a lot of pride. I know they don't talk much and and you know they they don't uh, have a lot of face time, which is a good thing. But I think they're very prideful, very intelligent people that are not interested in being puppets. And so the idea that somebody like Trump or somebody like Clinton uh, would, would appoint somebody and all of a sudden laws would turn around, they kind of take that as an insult, I think. And, and people don't think about that. They just think, oh, a Supreme Court judge is somebody who interprets things a certain way. No, uh, I don't see the Supreme Court changing same-sex marriage, Obamacare, Roe v. Wade, Brown versus Board of Education, or uh, other other things that, that they have um come up with either so it's, it's a very interesting point now to you said uh senator mcdonald am i saying his name correctly uh Go- governor, governor sorry governor mcdonald uh, you know it's one of those things where he, it was a technicality almost you know you said he wasn't in the role of official uh government and he and so he didn't do anything wrong he used he may have used the air around a celebrity but not his actual celebrity to to do it i mean I don't I don't really know enough about the details to say, you know, whether it was fair or foul. But I do think that they looked at the decision. They looked at precedents they made and they made a decision that certainly if it's eight zero, then it's something that just something must have stuck out in a very technical way that forced them all to vote a certain way. There was no way to dissent. It was like, okay, well, this is this is the case. So I don't really you know, have too much to think about it. You know, I don't think the Supreme Court is is corrupt. I don't think it's conspiracy theory and decisions they make 
So I just, I mean, I actually think Supreme Court is one of the best things a country has as far as making laws and decisions because they don't just go and reverse things, uh, you know, every so often, every few years when they're up for re-election because they're not up for re-election. So I think that's something important to understand, uh, you know, about the Supreme Court and about the justices that that hold the offices. They take it very seriously and they do their jobs based on interpreting the law, not based on the interpretation that the people who appointed them want them to have. I was actually surprised by the unanimous decision. I had heard like legal experts say that there's a chance that they could uh, find him not guilty on this. But a unanimous decision was kind of surprising. But I guess I should have saw it coming because I saw the early arguments from uh Elena Kagan and Sotomayor, who are both liberal uh, justices, and they were kind of questioning the whole uh, legit legit, um, ruling from the previous court on whether or not he was receiving gifts and using his office in an illegal way. As for the the abortion uh, law that they uh, struck down and, and Trump speaking out on it, I I think we've done a good job. We've done our best to try to be as fair to all candidates that we discuss on this show. But, you know, when it comes to Trump, man, and I, he talks out his ass. I mean, there's no other way to say it. He he just talks. He talks. He loves to talk. He loves to hear himself talk. And unfortunately, a lot of times he's just talking out his ass and saying a lot of dumb stuff that makes no sense. Again, I know a lot of people like him, but. That's just the facts. He says things that are just factually not true. There are other words that I would really like to use, but we don't do that type of show. But let's uh, let's talk to someone who doesn't speak out there as Brandon R. Davis is a smart brother. Uh, let's discuss some politics and, and just different social issues with this brother. So let's talk to Brandon R. Davis. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Today's guest, his resume, I would say, reads like a stock resume that you may find on the Internet. This brother is into all type of things. He has expertise in politics, gender and race studies. He's also a member of the Omega Sci-Fi fraternity, Brandon R. Davis. Thank you for making time for us today, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, we're going to try to talk about a variety of things, man. Um, this question I'm about to ask you, I actually, I usually hate hearing during the interview because it's kind of a broad question, but I figured that you could handle it and give a, a good specific answer to it, man. In your words, can you explain this whole Trump phenomenon as far as <laughs> candidates in the past, when they make a gaffe like he makes, they usually have to do the mea culpa and come and apologize and, and really walk back their statements. This guy says a lot of outrageous things, and he continues to move up in the polls. He's won the Republican nomination. A lot of people have tried to tell us that it's, you know, people are angry. I tend to disagree with that, but we've been fed the excuse that people are angry and upset, and that's why they're dealing with him. In your words, can you explain what has allowed him to be so different from every other candidate we've ever seen? Yeah, well, Trump is a product of what the Republican Party has been pushing uh, for the past several election cycles. 
the Republican Party, their primary system, even the Democratic primary system, is geared towards the hardcore uh, pundits, right, or the hardcore partisan individuals. And the Republican Party, over the past few election cycles, has fueled these single-issue voters, who people who are just for no immigration, just for no abortion, just for uh, no social programs, or just for these certain one topic or single issue uh, um, things. And Trump is the culmination of them consistently feeding this xenophobia, this racism, this isolationism in the basement, and finally the thing in the basement has burst out. And it's burst out in the form of Donald Trump. Now, I, I believe personally that Donald Trump is smarter than what we think he is, and I think Donald Trump saw that opportunity and seized on it. I think that uh, the Republican Party has been, you know, just under undertones of racism, undertones of xenophobia, undertones of these types of things, and their party has picked up on it. Because these have been the people who have been pushing uh, or, or getting closer to Trump's type of politics throughout their at least the last two uh, presidential cycles. You can think of people like uh, uh, some of the some of the hardcore Republicans like Huckabee or uh, hardcore Republicans like Pat Buchanan. Like one of them. Um, there was just hardcore religious right people who have been pushing these types of issues, and he's just been able to catch the wave at the at the crescendo. In your in your answer, you said you you believe he's a, a you know a lot smarter than we think, and to a certain extent, I guess you're saying that he saw a niche that he could capitalize on. That kind of reminds me of what I heard of uh, uh, Rupert Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News, and that he, I've heard people say that he's not even really a conservative, but he saw the MSNBCs and the CNNs, and he saw a lane for conservative right wing news. Mm-hmm. And he started Fox News, and he doesn't even really believe all that stuff, but he saw a great money maker, and, and that's kind of I got some of that with uh, with your Trump answer. Um, yeah, yeah. What, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just agreeing with you. Okay, I, I was going to move to the the other side of the uh, political spectrum on the Democratic side. The uh, the the main thing we've heard with Hillary Clinton is people don't trust her that that she's a liar. Now. People that follow politics, we know that pretty much all politicians lie. I was wondering yeah. if you could speak to why that has stuck to her so much because people will bring up Benghazi and this whole email thing, but people have said this about Hillary long before Benghazi, long before the email scandal. What is the one lie that she told that is made that is stuck to her? Like why is it because she's a, a, a female that, that may become the first female president? Like, why has this stuck with her and, and all other politicians? They seem to kind of move past it. Well, I, w- I would agree with what you said originally, that she's, she's a woman. And because she's a woman, these types of, like, uh, uh, mythology and fables that they come up with to surround her with just stick better. I mean, there's no person who's been a greater flip-flopper than Mitt Romney, but nobody calls Mitt Romney a liar. You know, and because, but, you know, just because... She's a woman. She's you know she's more she's more accept not acceptable, but she's more uh, it's able. You're more able to call her a liar. Like when the person in Congress called Obama a liar, right? 
that wouldn't be possible for a white president. No white uh, uh, congressional person would reach, would stand up and call a, a, a white president a liar. But because she's in a different social position, her social identity is different, you know, being a woman, it's just that those things are able to stick more. I don't think she's more dishonest than any other politician. I think that she's a very capable, very uh, ambitious uh, person, and I think that simply because she's a woman, these types of uh, epithets are, able, are better able to stick to her. You know, because think about Trump, right? Trump says things left, right. He says things up, down. Nobody calls him a liar, right? Nobody, nobody uses those type of terminology when it comes to talking to her. But when it comes to uh, general public and, like, when we do polling data, people believe her to be a liar simply because people say it and it's easier to stick to her than it is other, other politicians or male politicians, I should say. That's a very interesting point, uh, Brandon, that you brought up as far as uh, the social um the context that people exist in, and very, I don't know if you've had a chance to hear it. I know you've been making the, the Internet break. Uh, Jesse Williams' uh, speech at the BET yeah. Awards, um, you know, coming from the position you're in, you have a lot of publications where you talk about race and positioning of, of you know, uh, genders and, and ethnicities in, in the, in the, in the uh, you know, scope of the America and how things are being done. Like, what, what was your take on his speech? I know initially some people were really like, yeah, it's really good, and some people were trying to rebut it. But just what is your take on what he said? And, and more importantly, what can do you think people can do in a day-to-day? Because after you hear a speech like that, you're like, yeah, that sounds really good. But then you go back to, like, doing whatever you do, and you're not really making a difference. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I listened to the speech. I thought it was really good. I thought he really prepared for it. I thought it was a really good speech. I thought he hit a lot of really good points. Uh, a lot of the rebuttals, I think, deal with more inconsistencies or, you know, incongruencies between us. You know, colorism is a very powerful uh, divisive agent, and I think that if we buy into this idea that if you're lighter or darker that you have some more more to say about an issue than another person in the same race, I think we're falling uh, victim to the same type of uh, divisive or racist type of techniques that are used to divide a group. Now, as far as how, where we go from here, uh, it's a very difficult question, right, because we're talking about how do individuals reshape institutions within this nation. We're talking about how we reshape criminal justice to where it doesn't target people of color. We're talking about how we reshape education to whereas poor kids don't get the short end of the stick simply because they're poor. And so those big questions or those big concerns, I think, are policy issues. And when you're talking about addressing something like that on a macro level, you first have to get uh, the policymakers or the people who are going to – and the people who are going to implement these policies to – recognize and also to acknowledge that racism exists, right, that classism exists, and that these are the things that are fueling these policies that cause so much, uh, cause so many disparities between these social groups. I mean, I think that's a great point. You said the people that, that are in a position to make policies, and, and one of the things me and Byron talk about, if you ever listened to the show previously, we talk about people voting in local elections, and I think that people yes. are going to be looking at saying, okay, i got to vote for Trump or i got to vote for Hillary. I got The president is a big deal, certainly, because you know they have access to nuclear weapons, and I think that's not to be understated. But from a standpoint of your day-to-day life, I think when you looked at the Ferguson situation and you wrote a publication on it, I have not read it, but 
I, I definitely saw that you had written one, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that you understand the situation is it had happened where this police chief and the district attorney were elected in a community where people weren't voting and they weren't even being represented. They were being represented by somebody who they hadn't even elected because they hadn't, hadn't voted. There was a very low voter turnout in the minorities of Ferguson. And I do believe subsequently after this happened that some of those people have been removed from, from office after, after people had, had voted. So just the idea to me that I don't think it's underscored enough that people, I guess, vote. Is, is there, do, you, do you tell young people, you know, when you, you're speaking with them about the importance of voting, especially in local elections, and understanding who the candidates are and not just going and checking a box or, or not voting at all? Yeah, I do. My, my, my dissertation is, is, well, the first part is on participation or voting, and the second part is on uh, how institutions affect your inter- interpersonal or um, even, like, mental health well-being. And voting is very important, especially on the local level. When you speak about Ferguson, it's very, very interesting because Ferguson is, like, almost 70% black, and it's been majority, supermajority black for over 15 years. And we have to look and see how can a city that's 70% black have a white mayor, 50 or 54 police officers white, a completely white municipal court system. How is that possible, right? And, and the argument is, the argument I make, is that the criminal justice system in Ferguson was targeting African Americans for profit through municipal court fines and penalties and fees. And when you do that, when you target a group of people with an institution like the criminal justice system, you can effectively reduce their what we call political efficacy, which is trust in government amongst other things, and make them not feel like their participation will produce politicians that will reflectively uh, uh, reflect their interests, political interests, and you can push down their participation rates or their turnout rates when it comes to vote. So it's very vital to vote. It's very vital to vote also in municipal elections because, like you just said, uh, the, the government that touches you most is the government that's closest to you. So your local elections, your state elections are very vital because these are the people who are going to make the policies you live on on a daily basis. Now, the federal government does have, does have an overarching reach when it comes to uh, how we live our lives, Supreme Court, things like that are very important. But, like, simple things like traffic codes, or uh, certain types of crimes or state crimes. And if we don't vote the right people in, the right judges in in some states, then we can be, uh, all municipalities can turn out something like Ferguson, where you have a minority, 30% of the population, controlling the political apparatus that then targets uh, a certain group of people for profit or just for malice. We are talking to Brandon Davis. For those of you who listened to the past episode with Orazio Macarella when we talked finance and credit, he is actually Orazio's line brother uh, on Omega Sci-Fi, the Q's. So we uh, we definitely thank you, Brandon, for making time for us. I wanted to uh, stick. I wanted to stick on what you wrote about uh, Ferguson, and the title of that article was Ferguson: The Latest Front in the State's War on Black Community. It was in the. Uh, it was published in the Pan Am Post. I'm going to post it to our Facebook page for those of you that are interested in watching. It's it's a great read, Brandon. It has some statistics in there that I didn't know as far as New York stop and frisk. I mean, overwhelming you know numbers in that article. Uh, you talked a lot about the militar militarization of uh, the police department, and my thing is this: when when police departments when they buy this equipment. 
they have to train with it. And when you train with it, it to me it creates this certain mindset of a us versus them war mentality. It's like they're soldiers on our local streets. So it goes from kind of the whole protect and serve to the let's go crack some heads and, and, and handcuff some people and arrest them. And, and like I say, it creates this us versus them. Uh, me and Frank last week, well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the latest shooting in Mobile, Alabama. I'm not sure if you're familiar mm-hmm. with it, with Michael yeah, Moore. My, my question to you is, the things that you, you noted in your article as far as the limited contact that a lot of these officers have with minorities, and like I said, with the whole us versus them mentality, do you think that outweighs any potential racial views that they may have? Because a lot of times when these shootings occur, we always say, well, the cop was racist. And that may be true, but do you also think it's, it's that whole mentality that's created with the whole militarization of these police departments? And like you stated in your article, just not having a lot of contact with minorities and knowing how to deal with them. Yeah, well, I think it's two parts. I think one part is, is that criminality has been effectively linked to blackness, so that when you see a black person, especially a young black male, you automatically think that they're up to no good, right? When we don't have the same kind of uh, thoughts when we see a group of white young males together. And I think that adds to it to a certain extent that criminality has been so effectively uh, ingrained into blackness that black is criminal, black people are criminal, right, that even when we talk about social programs, when you think about when in the 80s they talked about the welfare queen and things like that, that was a black type of image, right? So we think of black people always cheating the system and are committing some type of criminal activity, when in fact that's not true, that white people commit more crimes, white people do more drugs, and that uh, that idea, that mythology surrounding blackness as criminal fueled uh, lots of uh, lynchings, post-Reconstruction, enduring Reconstruction and things like that. And I think that the militarization uh, adds to the trigger happiness of local law enforcement. If I get a tank, if I get some type of militarized weapon, if I get automatic, uh, like machine gun type firearms and things, then I start using them, right? Then you see those types of things used in regular uh, policing, right, regular, uh, uh, you know, pullovers for certain things, you see those types of things used in when serving warrants, you know, and it just adds to the likelihood that someone will get killed. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book called The Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Bilko, who writes the Washington Post, that documents how this happens. And when you give people these types of things, they want to use them, and it's pretty much free, right? We're giving the federal government is giving these local law, law enforcement departments, right, your podunk or your small town is getting tens of thousands of dollars in free militarized equipment from the federal government, you know, in order to just police the streets as regular. I think uh, a good example of that was after the tragedy in Boston when uh, we had the terrorist attack, you saw the police come out in all these militarized vehicles, all this militarized equipment, and, you know, it just it, it creates an air of, of fear and it creates an era where, you know, if I got it, I must, I must be, I should be supposed to use it, right? I'm supposed to use this. If they gave it to me, I'm supposed to use it. And the people I'm supposed to use it against are criminals, which are more or less like, or more likely to be characterized as people of color. You know, if it's, if it's not 
uh, African Americans, it's Hispanics, and now most recently it's people of Middle Eastern descent. Brandon on here speaking at real today. Uh, he he is a uh, your young voices advocate, and as we stated, he has you published quite a, a couple of articles in Pan Am, also one in The Heel. And uh, again, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I'm going to get you out of here with one last question, uh, and I'm going to see if we agree or disagree on that on this. Uh, we're talking about, you know, police officers when they shoot unarmed teens, but not necessarily just police officers because with, with Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman wasn't a police officer, but he did wind up uh, mm-hmm. killing him, and also with, with Michael Dunn when he shot Jordan Davis. So, mm-hmm. but usually when this happens, to me there, there becomes two different sides of, the, of black people in their arguments, and you have the side that, you know, they're, they're outraged at what happened and they want to hold the police accountable. Then you have the other side that says, well, what about black-on-black crime? You, I, I don't see you guys marching and, and, and speaking up when, when black people kill other black people. I want, to get, I want to get your answer on what side are you on as far as that argument goes, and in your own words, why the other side is wrong or at the very least misguided in their viewpoint. Well, I'll say, I'll say that uh, of, of all of those uh, black people who were killed, by law enforcement or vigilantes of the such, committing a crime is not a death. You don't. It's not a death sentence for uh, any type of crime other than murder, right? So you can't. There is no lawful reason to kill someone because they committed any type of crime. That's just period. And I think that because of this investment in criminality and the blackness, right, that black people are so scary or so volatile that we have to use some type of lethal force. I think even the, the the DOJ report at Ferguson shows that their police department used like pulled over and ticketed blacks at ninety percent of the tickets and pullovers, ninety some percent of the uses of force, excessive force were used against blacks, ninety something percent of all of the uses uses of uh, tasers or something like that was against African Americans. And I think that we have to understand that, you know, being black isn't enough of a reason in order to use this type of force. And I think that when it comes to uh, police agencies or people talking about these types of incidents, they need to realize that African Americans are, are less likely, are less likely to, are, are to less likely to use drugs, less likely to commit crimes. We don't commit more crimes than, than whites or anything like that. And that the idea of black on black crime is a myth. People commit crime against uh, towards people that they live around. Correct. So why don't Asian on Asian crime is a thing, right? Asian people don't leave their enclaves and come to the black side of town or the Latino side of town or the Italian side of town to rob people. They rob people in their own little areas. So that's just how crime works. So there is no really no such thing as black on black crime. And yes, you know, any any type of crime or any type of violence should be taken seriously, like the conditions in like Chicago and things like that, where we have a lot of a lot of crime, a lot of murders things like that, we should look at seriously. But it's not always just that simple, right? So there are certain things that go into effect that can produce more instances of crime, right? Poverty, uh, unemployment, even criminal, even criminal justice, right? If you over-police an area, you create a, a, a situation or environment where a majority of the people can't get decent work. If you over-police a neighborhood and you're pulling everybody over, and you're harassing neighbors, like with the stop and frisk that they used to have in New York, what you do is you create felons, right? 
is not you're not doing that stop and frisk in the white neighborhoods or the rich neighborhoods. You're not pulling all these cars over in the white neighborhoods or the rich neighborhoods. So what happens is you over police an area, you create a space or an environment where lots of people have criminal records and therefore can't get work. And then you create a, 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 the, the circumstances to where they have to do things that may not be legal to order to obtain a living. Now, am I saying that selling drugs and things like that is the right thing to do? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that over-policing can actually cause crime. And what I'm saying is that when you over-police those areas with, a, with an attitude that these black people are all criminals or these black people are all dangerous, you make an environment where it's okay to use excessive force against African Americans. It's okay to violate their civil liberties and civil rights. The article he wrote, uh, Ferguson, the latest front in the state's war on black community, again, go to Politically Entertaining's Facebook page. I will post that. It's an article that you wrote about two years ago, but in my opinion, it, it still holds true today. So I encourage everyone to uh, check it out and listen. Before you go, Brandon, if you if you would like... Um, you know, tell us what you're currently uh, studying, what you're working on, or if you have anything as far as future plans that you uh, hope to accomplish before you get out of here. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm finishing my dissertation now, and uh, probably uh, two great points from my dissertation I think will be most beneficial is that uh, I found that not only having contact with the criminal justice system, not in the sense of getting a felony where you cannot vote or you're barred from voting, but having contact in the sense of being arrested, being harassed, uh, you know, having to go to court for something like that, leads to people, makes people less likely to vote. And it also, having the same contact, if a family member has it, not even you personally, it makes you less likely to vote. And in addition to that, it makes you more susceptible to depression, uh, negative personal feelings, uh, lack of happiness. Uh, increased sense of nervousness. And so the criminal justice system is, is in a very effective tool when we talk about predation or some type of predatory state. It's a very effective tool in increasing the isolation, alienation of a group of people and that it can be effectively used in order to silence a majority like it was used in uh, Ferguson. Brandon Davis, uh, thank you again for joining us. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed that. I want to thank Brandon R. Davis for joining us. That's Brandon R. Davis. Again, you can follow him on at on Twitter at Brandon R. Davis. Uh, again, the name of that article is Ferguson, the latest front in the state's war on black communities. We're going to post that on our Facebook page. And Frank, one of the uh, one of the most inter interesting things that I liked about that interview was him mentioning the psychological effect of police brutality, brutality and racism. Like we always look at the physical or whatnot, but it definitely, I mean, even myself, like I can honestly say that I've never been like, you know, brutally beaten by, I've had very limited uh, interaction with police as far as you know, confrontation like that. I've been pulled over before, but Never anything like that. And even with that said, man, when I go running a lot in these different neighborhoods and I live in a predominantly white neighborhood and even then, not even going through what some of these people go through, running through these predominantly white neighborhoods, I'm like, I'm very careful not to look suspicious. Like, I don't want it to seem like I'm casing out the neighborhood 
or looking at anybody's cars like I got my headphones on and I'm just running and I wanted to be known that I'm just running. And I didn't plan on sharing that, but that just came to me like, so if it affects me like that, someone who's never been through it, I can only imagine how it affects other people. I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, if you found anything interesting or if you found that particular thing interesting in the interview. It was a fascinating interview. I mean, he's a very, uh, Brandon is a very intelligent uh, young man. And, and just to hear his perspective and the things he's uh, articulated, not just in, in his paper, but in his thoughts and his words, it was, it was incredible. Uh, to follow up what you said, I think it's it's a thing that in, envelopes all all of us as minorities that we all think when we see a police officer, is this, could this be, could this be the one cop that's going to do something crazy to me? Because, I mean, it's happened so many times, you can't help but think it. You know, I, I work in a place that there's a state trooper sometimes that will patrol uh, the, the yard. And, and I remember one time, and, and, it's, and it could be just complete paranoia, and I do acknowledge that I am uh, kind of OCD, and I could have just been paranoid. But I, I drive in the parking lot, and I have an issue. Like, I like to park on end spots because I don't want any door dings in my car. It's just me. I'm just special. I'm really special like that. It drives my wife nuts. Well, I used to drive her nuts. She's just used to it now. She's like, just park far away on the end spot. So she's used to it. But I, you know, was kind of casing, I was kind of casing the parking lot looking for the right spot. And I, this, I swear the straight trooper was leaving and he kind of doubled back and was like kind of watching. I swear he was watching after me. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. Um, I certainly was aware of it and had a thought. Now nothing happened. He didn't say anything. He didn't stop me. So it could have just been my mind. But the point is, like you said, psychologically, the fact that I even considered it when I'm going to my job and I can park in any spot I want. And yet I had a concern that I was going to be in a confrontation potentially because I wanted to park in a certain spot. And, and just, like you mentioned about running. And so it is something that for people who have gone through it, who have family members who have gone through it, I can see how they could be very much affected. And I think the main thing people don't understand about being a minority is that you walk with this cloud over you in some regards where you don't know that everybody's going to look at you fairly. And I think that's the tough thing that sometimes people don't understand if you're not a minority, that you don't know what it's like, uh, you know, to be where the majority of people are, are not like you. And, it makes a difference, especially when law enforcement is not like you and they have made some actions and some decisions that make you say, hmm, that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. And then they were able to succeed or get away with what they did. It gives you pause in all your thoughts and interaction. I think that is what a lot of what Brandon was was talking about and how, uh, you know, it's, it's just important for, uh, you know, us to vote. Like he talked, he talked about that local elections and make sure we have the right people in office uh, so so that we're not getting a, a corrupt because because he mentioned Ferguson, he's mentioned those numbers. He said 30 percent what Caucasian population was dominating a 70 percent African-American population. That makes no sense, except for the fact that the mind is the most powerful you know thing you can control. It's not a, it wasn't a physical thing. I mean, technically, 70 percent is like if all the white people in Ferguson and it rose up on all the white people in in the same city, they would have had a, a numbers advantage. Right. But they didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They felt powerless. They felt uh, disenfranchised. And so it's an amazing thing. And, and I and I haven't really read a lot of his work, but I will try to go and, and read some of it just so I can understand more of it. And maybe, uh, you know, as I said, so we can also spread a positive message so that people can start voting and understanding that, you know, 
I didn't understand the power that it had to stop people from voting. And that's an amazing thing uh, that we don't even think about. We talk about voting rights act, people talking people from trying to vote. But some people aren't even going to the polls because they just feel like, you know what? It's not going to make a difference. It's not going to matter. And some of that's because of that reason. That was very fascinating. You can say that we're just being paranoid when we uh, talk about these different examples. And you could be absolutely correct. Frank mentioned it, that it could just be his own paranoia. But we're telling you our reality and, and how we feel when we feel that way. That's real. I, I've talked to many people that just feel like they've been followed in certain department stores because they're just looking around. That that's that's our reality. So again, you can write it off as we're just being paranoid if you disagree with it. And again, I say that could be true, but that's our reality. Um, want to talk about Brexit? And I'm going to be completely honest. I'm not a complete expert on what's going on, but I do know this is a big deal. It's been covered a lot in mainstream media, and like I mentioned at the top of the show, occasionally we do discuss stories that are mentioned in the mainstream media because it's that big and this story is that big Britain voted to lead the European Union it has affected uh, their fears that it's going to affect the economy worldwide so much so that our Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu he had to come out in a press conference and reassure the American public that our economy is doing just fine this is not a repeat of the 2008 crisis that we had going on but like immediately after that vote came out, no less than 24 hours later, the pound dropped 10 percent. And more recently, just a few days ago, it was at its lowest since 1985. It, it, it's just for, for, for them to vote that way and then have an effect on the entire world. I guess I just wanted to know, like, how much how much have you followed this story? Is this something that uh, you're panicked about? Because, you know, we talked to uh Razio Macarella, like episodes ago, he's all about, you know, finances and stocks. So I can imagine that he's been all over this. I don't know how how uh, closely you follow, you know, uh, you know, stocks and trades and things of that nature. What were your thoughts? Were you surprised on this vote? And were you a little scared on, on what could possibly happen to our economy? That's a great question. I'm answering in reverse. I, I am into stocks. I do. Uh, have some have my own portfolio and a brokerage account independent of of, of my IRA that's uh, my company has, and, and so let me just give you my view. So I mean I didn't really I didn't really lose any money or anything, but I mean I had some things in my positions go down. They're all back now, but the reaction the the stock market is insane nowadays. Uh, it, it's so reactionary. It's it's just crazy. So Brexit fueled, uh, you know this. Crash, I wouldn't say many, many crash in stock market where, where things were dropping and people were gold commodities, you know, jumped up gold, silver, even commodities like Bitcoin jumped way up because people are looking for security because they're thinking, oh, well, you know, Britain left the, the EU um, and now um, basically maybe maybe this is going to cause America's dollar to crash and we need to get in commodities and. Uh, there's been a whole big thing with the Fed raising the interest rate. That's not related to Brexit, but there's a lot going on in the market that the market just reacts. However, but as far as Brexit itself, um, to me, it was just another example of people not understanding. There were people that after it happened, after, you know, basically Britain has voted to leave the European Union, people that voted were like, I didn't really think it was going to happen. I just voted 
I just thought it would be cool to troll the vote. And I think when you hear stuff like that, that's what could get Donald Trump elected. People saying, I didn't think Trump was going to be the president. I just voted for him. I was just kidding around. I didn't think that it was really going to happen. And now, you know, everything that the people that wanted the secession from, you know, the European Union, they're backing off on all their promises. Uh, you know, David Cameron obviously stepped down because he said, hey, I can't lead Great Britain at this point because, uh, you know, as a prime minister, I, I feel like, well, if if they, we don't want to be separate, I don't my government was my, I was part of be part of the European Union. I was part of that movement. I'm going to let somebody else run the country out, you know, so it's really crazy what happened. And the, and the effects are not quite known just yet. I think some people uh, you know, think that it could be the end, beginning of the end. Some people think eventually they might stabilize. I mean, I don't know enough about, I'm not an economist, but I can tell you it probably wasn't the smartest thing. It just, you know, it, the, the idea of, of splitting uh, from that is silly. And, and, and the thing, and then people fueling rumors that, oh, Texas might secede, which is not going to happen, by the way. But just this idea of secession. That's just not the in a global economy, a global world, secession or going is just not smart. You you know it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Where there's too many economies linked, there's too many markets that are linked. You can't just separate yourself from the world. So this idea that you know Britain is going to be this self-sustained, you, you know, it's crazy. You know, it's funny. I'm just going to use this example before we get off this. People say stuff like, why don't we make iPhones in America? Why don't we just, you know, bring all these jobs back? Do you know that all the components for the iPhone don't even exist in America? The, all the, the elements that are part of the iPhone, meaning going back to your chemistry class, periodic table, the elements that make your iPhone don't even all exist in the United States. So it can't even, even if you wanted to have the factories and the workers here, you just have to still go to other countries to get what's in the iPhone and you want your iPhone, right? So it's, it's never as simple as what people think it is. We are, we are, we are forever linked to each other now in this world. The Internet, the global economy, we're we're in this together. And that's what people need to understand about the terrorist attack, stock market, everything. Nobody, You cannot separate yourself from this. So we have to make smart decisions in all things we're doing because down the line is going to come back. I know sometimes we think, oh, well, it doesn't affect me. But it will. And, and, and I don't mean to I don't want to give like a speech. I don't want to give another going another rant or anything like that. But this idea that people can exist separately and do their own thing in today's world, certainly country, especially, it's just not it just doesn't make sense. And we don't have enough time in the show to explain why it doesn't work. But I just want to give that small example uh, as a point of, of those things. So we'll see what happens with Brexit. We'll track it. I, I think it's going to be a bad thing. Uh, but but we'll see what happens long term. Man, you nailed it with the Trump example, because that's exactly what I thought about. The main reason a lot of people who voted the way they did, they said it was because they were frustrated and they felt like they were being ignored. Um, that's what you hear from a lot of Trump voters. Before we go, uh, the BET Awards were last week. Uh, actor Jesse Williams won the BET 2016 Humanitarian Award for his work with uh, protesters in Ferguson and other places where uh, Black Lives Matter or, or questionable police shootings of unarmed black men have occurred. 
Uh, he gave an incredible speech. I must admit, I was looking down at my phone when he uh, first got the award. And as he began talking and he was saying these things, I was like, whoa, whoa. And he immediately grabbed my attention. I began watching. And it was one of those things where you knew that this was going to be something that everybody would be talking about on social media. I want to get your thoughts on it, Frank. I had, there are three quotes within this speech that just really stuck out to me, and they kind of related to past episodes of our show. The first quote was, this is in particular for the black women in particular who spent their lifetime dedicated to nurturing everyone before themselves. We can and will do better for you. I immediately thought about our interview with Dr. Amanda Williams and how women suffer from depression and, and psychological issues more than men and one of the reasons she gave was because a lot of times women put everybody before themselves and that really resonated with me the second quote if you have a critique for the resistance then you better have an established record of the critique on our oppression if you have no interest in equal rights for black people then don't make suggestions to those who do sit down I immediately thought about Claiborne Carson he didn't say those exact words, but he did pretty much say, hey, if you're not going to vote, you don't get to complain. Sit down, pretty much is what he said. Really enjoyed that interview with him. In the last quote, my favorite quote of the entire speech, dedicating our lives to getting money just to give it back for someone's brand on our body. When we spent centuries praying with brands on our bodies and now we pray to get paid for brands on our body. That was like a rap lyric. And it actually made me think of a rap lyric by Cameron, no less, who usually to me is pretty corny. But this particular line, he once said, back in the days we were slaves, whips and chains is tradition. All I got is whips and chains. Whips, of course, are cars, chains, what rappers wear. But the speech was phenomenal, man. Of course, he got some criticism from conservatives. We knew that was going to happen. But it was a great speech, man. I just want to get your, get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing speech. And I think you mentioned you were looking at your phone. Uh, you know, we were scrambling around Sunday night, uh, you know, getting ready for, you know, work, daycare, et cetera, et cetera. And we were both, well, I think my wife may have been washing dishes and I was maybe getting uh, folding up a sheet or something. But we both stopped what we were doing and we were like, whoa. This guy is 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 really saying something. We just both stopped what we were doing and just listened. So it did have that impact where it was like he kind of stood up and you're like, okay, great, he won the award. And then you're like, wow, okay. And you know, to go back, you know, to some of the quotes you mentioned, I'll, I'll take it in reverse. You know, the brands and everything was a great thing because I think that the idea that there are a lot of black people that think they're they beat the system because they're getting money, and it goes back to the point where I was saying earlier about you can't just be have a positive effect for yourself. And if you're not doing anything, it's not going to, it's not going to be a good thing for everybody else. And I think that's what he's saying is like, Hey, you're out there getting money. You're getting these brands. You're fighting for this to be marked by these brands, but you're not really, you're no different than you were before, but you, you, you think you're living better. Um, and I think that's a hard reality to accept because if I've got, you know, 20, $30 million in my bank account, I'm, I'm like, you can't tell me nothing. I'm, I'm living right. I'm living large. And I think that. There's been a been been a, been a, a thought in in the black community, especially that you know we 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 gotta make it, and when we get money, we get stuff, and we made it, and that's not necessarily the case uh, of of how we do things. And the, and then um the the quote, what was the second quote? I I, I know I know the first one, but I'm gonna go in reverse order. 
the second one was if you have a, re- a critique. For oh, yes. The Perfect. Yes. So, you know, this whole thing, every time somebody comes out and makes a good speech, and Jesse Williams is not the first person um, to, to make a, a good a good stand, a good speech. To me, it goes back to there are people that come with a stupid rebuttal like, oh, well, why don't black people stop having a bunch of kids and why don't they be fathers or kids? Why don't they stop committing crimes? Again, 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 to go back to what Brandon Davis said, such a great point we didn't really bring up yet about the black on black crime and who commits more crimes. Black people are only 12 percent of this country. So even if all of the black people in the country were committing crimes, it still wouldn't be more than the number of white people that are committing crimes just because of the percentage that we are. So this this idea that we've been criminalized is, is really a powerful, powerful narrative. And it's an amazing thing that, that Brandon, like I said, articulated. And we talked about him earlier. But my, my thing is this. You know, everybody's got a thought on how to make things better or why things are how they are. You know what? My question to those people who are making those statements, do you have any black friends? Have you done anything for outreach for a black community? Have you reached out to a minority, not just black, I say minority just just to be fair, but have you done anything for people that are below your class, so to speak? I'm doing air quotes. Have you done have you made a sacrifice? And a lot of these people haven't. They just live their lives and they, you know, go and do what they do. But it's like if you don't live beyond yourself and serve others, you really don't have a right to make a critique about what other people need to do. And I think he nailed that on the head. All these, you know, Twitter, you know, people and, and things or, or or these fake news sites that, you know, conservative blogs that blast and say all these things, all these rebuttals, they're fake. And and then to go to the last point, the black uh, women, you know, for for too long, we have just again, going back to the brand thing, we we, we degrade our women, e- even in our pursuit, especially black men of, of wealth and brands and other things. Part of that ascent is you know hey i might knock off a few women too and you know yeah i might marry one but i'm gonna knock down at least 5 10 11 and you know until i get to the best one that makes me change my mind but it's like why is that even a narrative you so you're gonna go through 10 people's daughters and leave them hurt and broken till you get to your one queen how how are you helping and and so and that's just one example i'm not trying to come at rappers and all when people listen to say oh i'm but i'm saying there is a narrative negative uh, for for black women that that they have that, that we that we have to uplift them a little bit more as black men i challenge us first because we are black men first uh you know i'm just saying me and you and just in general uh and certainly there there's there's a great image i wouldn't call it a great image but a very telling image i've seen on facebook and probably other places but where there there there's american flag in the background i think you know this byron american flag black american flag in the background uh, a black woman nursing a white baby, obviously, it's probably like a Civil War time or not Civil War time, but pre, um, you know, pre pre um, freeing of slaves. So maybe pre-Civil War. But that's just how black women have been. They have been they came here, uh, you know, and, and they, they were beaten and raped by the slave masters. They had to breastfeed their ba- the, the, the babies that they had with the, the, the black men. They had they had to breastfeed the the babies that the white men had with them, and the white babies that they had with the white wives they had. So they had you know that's just one example of how they have been put put on and oppressed. Just being that is equal and 
and it's tough. And they and then now, certainly with with a lot of you know potentially broken homes where single mothers have had to take up slack because the man wasn't there. We've got to do better. We have to recognize that um, they're the pillars of our community, and certainly, you know, just again positive, being more positive intentionally. And I know sometimes you say, oh well, you know. You have to be intentional about it. You know, if if there's a black woman in your life, your wife, your mom, tell them you love them. Tell them you appreciate them. Let them know, you know, start today. It's something as small as that. That's how you make the change. I know people always wonder, well, how can I get started? How can I make a difference? The women in your lives now, if you have black women in your lives, whether it be your wives, girlfriends, mothers, sisters, let them know that you love them and you appreciate them. That's how you make the change. That's how you start. Well said, brother. Well said. Um, it's been another great show. We want to thank you guys for joining us. I'm actually going to let you take us out, Frank. I just wanted to say a uh, a rest in peace to the legendary Pat Summit, uh, former coach of the ten- Lady Tennessee Volunteers. She won like eight championships and numerous victories. She passed away at age 64. Um, I mean, she was just she's an icon in that sport. Uh, so rest in peace to her thoughts and uh, thoughts and prayers go to her friends and family. Also, we lost Buddy Ryan, who, if you are a Bills fan or a Jets fan, he's a uh, coach. Uh, I forgot his name. Coach Ryan's father, uh, Rob Ryan and uh, Rex Ryan. That's his name. His father. He passed away. Um, he's known for the 80, 85 Bears defense. Uh, many people call it the greatest defense of all time. Uh, so he was the architect of that. And he passed away as well. So rest in peace to those two, Pat Summit, Buddy Ryan. Again, thoughts and prayers to the family and friends of those families. It seems like almost every week we're losing some legendary people. So I just wanted to get that out there. And I'll let you take us out, Frank. Again, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Let your friends know. Let five friends know that you've been listening to Politically Entertaining and how it's making a difference in your life. We definitely appreciate that. Again, you can listen on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. You can listen on any of those apps. Just download them, type in Politically Entertaining. You'll find us there. You can visit us on our website, www.politicallyentertaining.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter at Devocal Minority. Uh, that's at D-A-V-O-C-A-L Minority. And you can also email us, good old-fashioned, um, at info at politicallyentertaining.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we will see you guys soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.